forgot what I was going to say. You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast. You listen to Seattle Growth Podcast. It's available free on iTunes. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm Jeff Shulman, and that was Anthony Briscoe of the band Down North, letting you know that you are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast. Anthony is a guest on today's episode and connects the topic of the previous season, which focused on the past, present, and future of Seattle music, with the topic of this season, which is focused entirely on homelessness. While Anthony is a musician whose band Down North is on the cusp of a breakout, he opens up about his struggle with poverty and his experience being homeless in our region. Homelessness is a crisis that affects everyone living in or connected to the city of Seattle. In this season of Seattle Growth Podcast, you've heard a diverse set of perspectives on the issue and how people are working to address it. Today's episode is focused on poverty. In addition to Anthony Briscoe, you'll hear from noted author, scholar, and University of Washington professor Scott Allard. Together, these interviews bring to light some of the challenges with common approaches to addressing poverty. You'll also get concrete action steps about what you could do to rise to the challenge facing our community. Before we get to these fascinating interviews, I have to apologize for the delay in bringing you this latest episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. I've been busy in the recording studio preparing a course for the Foster School of Business's new hybrid MBA program. I'm excited to be a part of the new work-compatible, mostly online MBA option. Business Week recently ranked the Foster School of Business as the third best MBA program at a public institution. And with the hybrid MBA program, your busy lifestyle won't stop you from earning a Master's of Business Administration from a top-flight program. So I've been busy working on the course for the hybrid MBA program, and I've also been hard at work on a feature-length documentary, On the Brink. As one member of a test audience said, the film is a must-see for people who have recently moved to Seattle and aren't aware of the history of communities of color or the impact of gentrification. Please like and follow our page, facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm, to hear about your opportunity to view the film that's been praised as an enlightening look at the hidden consequences of gentrification and the impact of losing a vibrant part of our community. Again, like and follow the page at facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm to find out when you could see it. Now, join me as I sit down with Anthony Briscoe. I am here with Anthony Briscoe, the, what up? Le- the lead singer for Down North, uh, a popular band from here in Seattle. Uh, they have a show Thursday, November 15th at El Corazon. Be there. And you've got uh, actually an interesting story to tell that connects to this season, which is the focus on, on homelessness. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me today. How y'all doing? How y'all doing? Going good. So why don't we start, just tell me about Down North and tell me about the band and, and your role in it and how it came together. Well, um, I'm the lead singer of Down North. Um, you know, we we came together just through the love of music. It's uh, There's a lot of great musicians here in Seattle and, um, you know, trying to find the right kind was was pretty easy, but we went through a lot of people. Uh, we started out, I'm not the original lead singer of the band, actually. Um, it started out as uh, like seven white dudes, and uh, they had me come in. Um, their original singer left, and then I came in and did some, you know, did my thing. And then um, 
you know, the seriousness of the band started taking over and some people started leaving out and now it's, uh, was it three black dudes and one white dude, (laughs) but, uh, he, uh, he's the founding member, um, Brandon. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, it took a lot of focus to get where we are and stuff right now. And a lot of stubbornness from me, uh, which, you know, brings us to the topic at hand (laughs) a lot of things so so again this season of seattle growth podcast is focused on homelessness but the previous season was actually focused on the music scene here in seattle so i'm glad to have you here with connecting kind of these two topics tell me a little bit more about the the music and what you're bringing and what seattle has meant to you as a musician i started out as a you know say hip-hop producer and i was sampling myself on beats so i was like you know, what it would be cool if I was able to just take a band and we was to like, and I could cut up the band. That was the original group. It was like, if I could just cut up the band and make our own loops because I was a sample-based type producer. So like, we take some grooves, I cut it up, and then boom, we make some dope hip-hop out of that. But it's, it sounds like a sample, but it's not a sample. That was the original idea. So then um, I found this group on Craigslist um, and they had a show a week before um, before I joined and they needed somebody to get in there. So I was like, all right, I'll come in. And I wrote like five songs in two days and with the music that they already had and then just rearranged it, did show. And I was sitting down the whole time while we were practicing. So they were like, so how are you going to perform these songs? You're just going to sit there? And I was like, nah, I mean... I saved the performance. I'm choreographing stuff in my head. I'm doing the performance and stuff in my head. So just, just be fine. Cause I, before that I was in this Michael Jackson, um, tribute band called who's bad. Um, so, you know, I already knew how to perform, but they didn't know I knew how to perform. They just knew I could sing a little bit. So as soon as we got on stage, I just went crazy on stage and they was like, Oh, snap. What you doing? (laughs) So, um, but we just grew from that. But I remember the first show I did because I wasn't on the poster and I showed up and the one of the promoters stopped me. He was like, who are you? And I was like, I'm the lead singer. He was like, uh, that's not what's on the posters. That's not what was on the poster. He was really upset. So now your video for the band has hundred thousand views you've got a concert on thursday november 15th at el corazon things seem to be uh looking up for you as a musician and as an artist but it wasn't always this way from my understanding you've experienced homelessness yeah um you know i've been lucky luckily enough to not be in the streets but i've still been homeless and that's because there ain't nothing but prayer (laughs) my mama been praying and that is you know like we had a practice space when we first started and uh, my mom, she used to stay in Kent and then she got a job in, uh, cause I, I would stay with her sometimes. Um, and then she got a job all the way in um, DC. So, you know, I had a choice either to go with her or to keep doing this music. And I believed in the music enough where I was like, okay, I'm going to stay. 
I was trying to get employment. I was trying to do other stuff, you know, to get it. But, you know, we want to go on tour. And you can't really tell your job, yeah, I'm going to be gone for 30 days, but I'll be right back. <laughs> you know, and then uh, the cost of living was starting to creep up even more. So, you know, starving artists is not just a, you know, a, a, a cliche word. Is this is real? You know, people out here who want to do the music where you have to put a hundred and ten percent into it? it hard times got hard. So, um, I got evicted from the place I was staying at, and. We were sharing a practice space with like four other bands. Um, so, you know, I would, I would pretend, and they didn't even know this. I don't even think most of them even know, but I would pretend that I'm just sitting there practicing and stuff like that. And they would leave, and we would that you could be in the practice space 24 hours a day. So I would pretend, you know, for the other bands, like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna sit here and do some drawing and do some writing and and do some more, you know, recording stuff. And I was writing music and stuff during that time, but yeah, as soon as everybody left, I would knock out. <laughs> and we had practice in the morning, so it worked out that way for a little bit. I would just be at the practice space. I was homeless. I was in the practice space, um, and when the other bands would have their practice. I would leave. And then as soon as I knew they were done, I would come back and it was just like, like that for the longest. And then, um, my bandmates didn't even know until, you know, they were like, Oh, okay. So, you know, we had a practice and then we did a late night practice and they were like, okay, so how are you going to get back from, you know, on the bus? Cause you got to go all the way to Kent. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to sit here and write. They were like, what's going on? <laughs> And yeah, the original singer from down north, um, he didn't like me too well. So and he was staying with our founding member, our bass player. So when it came to like, am I going to, could I stay with them for a while? Because we were making money. Um, so I had enough to um, pay for the rent. But if you don't have good credit, then or or you can't get an apartment you can't get accepted somewhere and then you have to have first and last so you know it's it's been kind of uh that's been one of the one of the main problems right there i mean i think that's one of the things that we need to learn in school is two things credit and taxes why don't we know about credit and how credit works in school why don't we know about taxes and how to do our own taxes in school i mean we we get like eight classes of math can one of those damn classes be a taxes class can one of those classes um, instead of home ec can we learn about credit you know can those are more important to me than how to make chili <laughs> okay <laughs> so while you're homeless where were you able to shower and where were you able to hold on to your stuff? Um, I got a membership um, at 24 hour fitness and I would, I would shower there. I should have been working out, <laughs> but you know, I was showered there. So, you know, I, 
I try to keep appearances. Um, I, I, I'm a military brat, so not having a lot of stuff was easy for me. Um, uh, cause you're always moving. So I had like maybe four outfits that I can perform in. And a lot of people thought that I was always, dang, you always re- look like you ready to perform. <laughs> you know, you got your pink pants on. And yeah, I still wear the pink pants now because I just love the pink pants. But at the time, it really wasn't my choice. It was just like, you know, I had um, three pair of pants, three shirts. I had you know, another jacket, not the one I'm wearing, not a jacket. And I had a uh, two white um, button up shirts and that's what I would wear on stage and I would do this it would be the same thing so it's like I was like always ready to perform and people just thought I was always ready to perform but it really is just that's just what I had and uh it would be always with the backpack and um it it got that way for a while and then the practice space um broke down or they, they tore it down so um, I stayed with um, the drummer for a little bit, and then we got a van. So I stayed in the van for a while. Um, it got it got dark, but then um, you know, like right now, I stayed at Airbnb um, because it you know a lot of people are starting to do that now, where um, and it's cheap during the day but also it's good for me because i don't have to first worry about first and last but also when i'm on tour i don't have to pay rent while i'm gone um which is like a waste of money so because if i'm gone for like 30 40 50 90 days and i still gotta pay 700 dollars towards somewhere i'm not gonna be at then that doesn't make sense to me and that's just for the room if i was staying by myself you know, rent is like twelve hundred at some places. I mean, it's getting it's getting high out there. It's ridiculous of how much the the rent and stuff is out over here for not that much of a place, not that much of a room. So now you just basically have a suitcase and you yeah. stay in Airbnbs mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. go on tour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it it makes it right now. It's it's convenient for me. Um, and I stay at a hostel type one. So it's like four people in one room, but you know, the, the people there, and it's all the way in Tacoma. So, you know, that's why the other reason why we was this morning, we was like, God, that's an hour or something. <laughs> like, can you do this over the phone? <laughs> ah, yes. This, this podcast is done early in the morning, y'all. So. <laughs> Not musicians' hours. So for those uh, who are thankful for hearing your perspective and, and knowing that you took an hour to get here yes, from Tacoma, yes, Tacoma, they could come support you by showing up at your show on Thursday, November 15th at El Corazon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, so tell me, like, wh- what were you feeling when you went from, you know, having a steady base, living with your mom, mm-hmm. and then, t- like, just trying to make it work with the... I'm stubborn. You know, uh, I could have... and. You know, I, I could have been like, you know, I'm going to get a job that's steady and I'm not going to tour and stuff like that. But I'm stubborn. I have a belief. I, I envision certain things that I want to do with the music, you know, and 
it's it's worked out. Um, but I sacrificed stuff because I ain't got no kids. I ain't got no, you know, I can I can I can risk that. Some people can't. You know. Um, so I look at it that way. Like I'm blessed because I have no kids and I don't have certain responsibilities, so I can take risks right now. Um and um I have a talent and I have a means of making money using my talent. So you know, if if it comes down to I got to be uncomfortable for a while, but I have a goal, then yeah, I'm going to be comfortable for a while and have a goal. There's some people out there, and I've met some of them, and, you know, mental health is a big problem in this city, too. You know, um, it's bad out there, and they don't have goals. They're just existing, and they don't know what to do. It's 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 really... Um, it's sad when you see that when you see see it like that certain times certain things people have the dough and the money to sustain themselves they're probably living paycheck to paycheck but they're they at least have a paycheck or something coming in and i think there needs to be more programs where like that that i've think that there should be where if a place is requiring you to pay first and last right and you're able to come up with with the monthly rent. You can show that you're coming up with the monthly rent, but you can't come up with that first and that last, that first initial as one pay because you know stuff happens where you can come up with the monthly, but you can't save up that monthly because that money got to go somewhere. You know, it's probably burning a hole in your pocket, but you got to survive, so you can't save up that much money. It should be if there's going if the government's going to subsidize some stuff, which it's hard for a single man to get some subsidized stuff too. You know, it's hard to get certain type of welfare or programs and stuff like that. And not saying that you need a whole bunch; you just need a little bit sometimes just to give a helping hand. You know, EBT, which I don't understand here. You can't get cooked foods. Um if you homeless what the hell you gonna cook it at you know so now things that you are spending on there's not that many um what they call like food deserts so you know if you live in seattle you got maybe one or two places where you can get groceries but them groceries is high as hell right so you got you know i live in tacoma which is cross street from winko and them prices is great, right? And you got to have a, a membership to get into Costco. So if you're homeless, what you going to do? You're going to go to where uh, you're going to go to the corner store and you're going to spend that one hundred and ninety eight dollars that they give you. And you're going to buy be spending the most expensive ways to get food, which is the corner store food. And most likely it's not good for you. So. You know, you're you're the, you're trying to cut corners and, you know, you're getting the white bread and, you know, you're getting some bologna sandwiches, but you got to carry the white bread everywhere with you. So, you know, you got to make the sandwiches that's already cooked. That's four dollars for a sandwich. You're going to eat what one sandwich a day and that's it. That's supposed to hold you. No, then you have to get something to drink. That drink is like another two dollars and some change, you know. So now boom, you don't spend six dollars when you're only supposed to be spending four dollars or something a day. And like, oh, oh, you can, 
you can eat water, drink water and eat healthy. You can't eat healthy when the apple costs half of what you're trying to make. You're going to carry around a bag of apples, but you can't carry around that much stuff. So what are you going to do? It's not, they, they should have it. So therefore you can buy cooked foods, um, like California does. California, you can go to Popeye's. You know, you have more options. You can go to um, uh, and get the cooked food at we at um what's that um Whole Foods. It's cooked though, so you ain't you can eat it and it's it's there for you. You ain't got to sit in there and prepare it and cut it up and all. People ain't got that, and it's not it's not fair that you are forcing people to cook their foods um that's one thing that i that i was having a problem with was the food part because you know and then you get in trouble if you sell your 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 ebt right for cash because you're just trying to eat food <laughs> you know what are you gonna do with that hundred and um and 98 dollars you know and if you are making money if you are making a little bit too much money, then they're going to take that away from you. And then now you're forced to have um, health care, which is not a bad thing. But if you can't afford that health care, if you make a little bit too much. It's like it's better for some people to be homeless or be be without a job than to have a job when it's certain certain things, because now you want to have good health care. But you make a little bit too much to have to be able to afford the health care. You're in that little middle spot. You can't afford the stuff that's coming in. There's a lot of things that needs to be changed into the system. So help somebody who has never had to live in a van or never had to sleep in a practice space and pretend that everything's okay. Help them feel what you felt or help them understand what that's I don't like. want to do that. Because if you can visualize it, I'm a big believer of visualization. And if you visualize it, then it can become what well, I believe thoughts are things. So if I try to get somebody to visualize what I was going through, I rather them um, see hope into, you know, if you are in this predicament, then there you you have to start seeing what do you want out of your life? Um, I think that sometimes we wallow in, um, defeat a lot in this economy. So I constantly tell people, yeah, I went through this, 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 and this, but I had goals and I was willing to go through this, 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 and this. I read books like Think and Grow Rich, um, the original and the black choice and the secret and stuff like that. And I write down what I want, you know, um, I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm just one of those people who's willing to go through the hard parts to get to the goals. Some people, they can't, they wouldn't be able to go through some of the things that I went through and I wouldn't wish that on anybody who, if they didn't have to. So, you know, don't cry for me, you know, <laughs> cause some of it was chosen, but um, like I said, I'm stubborn. Um, so I rather, I rather be homeless at the, you know, I, I rather go through that. That's what I was telling myself in my head. Like I'm going through this. It's only temporary. It's not too cold. It's not, 
um, when it did get cold and stuff like that, you know, I figured it out. You know, trying to find parking spaces where nobody can mess with you, you know, um, so the cops don't mess with you or anything like that. Just cap it simple. Cap it simple. And, you know, just knew that I, I just knew that the next day I had to get up and write songs. I had to get up and figure out how we're going to get the next show. I had to get up. Like, I had to have a goal. I couldn't just be like, stay in that state of mind. You can't. It'll go nuts. And that's why there's a lot of mental health and stuff around here. People, circumstances that happens and it just, you get to a breaking point. You know, so. so let's talk about that hope mm-hmm. then. <laughs> you are performing with Down North on Thursday, November 15th at El Corazon. What comes after that for you? What, what's the well, we're, what's next step? We just got signed to um, Live Nation. And um, one of my favorite bands of all time was Hall & Oates. And we're signed to um, Hall & Oates' management company, Wolfson Entertainment. So, you know, that happened and we're we're excited about that. We're trying to utilize uh much of that as we can. You know, everything's starting to look up. Um I, I can't complain. I did exactly you know, I visualized everything that I want and it's coming to pass. I just knew it was going to happen. You just have to know. It's to know, to know, to know. I think that we're like I said, we're not taught certain things in school. And, you know, for a school, it costs so damn much now. <laughs> then um, for for you not to learn certain things, um, it's, it's a tragedy. Because I think it's going to keep going into a circle, keep going into a circle. But if we don't understand debt, we don't understand credit, we don't understand taxes, we don't learn those those three things and how they work that I think that this country is going to keep going into a circle. But if we make it a priority to, to do that, but also the, the, the answer is not jobs. The answer to me is small businesses, you know, and a lot of most jobs that, um, that are created are created through small business. Or we should start teaching everybody about financial freedom and utilizing that stuff to move forward because if it wasn't for me getting my credit right and me fixing a couple of things then i wouldn't have been able to get some of the stuff that we have right now if i didn't start learning about that stuff anthony any concluding thoughts um i think at the end of the day you know enjoy what you do in life and if you're going to if you're going to sacrifice it, make sure it's only you who has to deal with that. All right. So I'm here with Anthony Briscoe, a lead singer of Down North, who's yep. performing Thursday, November 15th at El Corazon. Get there. Anthony, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. All right, man. Peace. In four minutes, you can hear an enlightening perspective on poverty from noted author and University of Washington professor Scott Allard. But for now, enjoy the song Heartbreaker from Anthony Briscoe's band Down North.
That was Heartbreaker from Down North. They'll be performing at El Corazon on Thursday, November 15th. Down North's lead singer Anthony Briscoe shared a personal story of poverty. Now, for an academic perspective from a noted author who has studied the issue of poverty very carefully, join me as I sit down with Scott Allard. I am here with Scott Allard. He's the Daniel J. Evans Endowed Professor of Social Policy at the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance here at the University of Washington. He's also a noted author, and he's been in the media all over for his work, uh, and I'm excited to have you here. Scott, thank you for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. So um, I gave you the long-winded uh, intro of your title. <laughs> if your title takes that long to say... Um, I can only imagine what I'm going to learn uh, when you tell me about yourself. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's I, I'm really I have to man, I'm really lucky to um, to inhabit the Daniel J. Evans Endowed Professorship. He was such an important uh, leader in the state of Washington, and it's just a real privilege. Now he's a, a good man with good good moral and ethical compass. So I uh, I feel fortunate to be connected to him. But it does it is a long read. So I'm relatively new to Seattle. Actually, this is something that that uh, I was excited about to, to the opportunity to kind of talk with you because I know of. The podcast, even though I've only been here a little while, um, I'm from Minneapolis originally, so Seattle kind of feels like home a little bit. Um, as a scholar, I, um, I'm a political scientist by training, but I worked in an interdisciplinary research center at the University of Michigan, where I got my PhD. So I'm a little bit of a, a mutt intellectually, and I think you see that in the work I do. I just um, I just published a book called Places in Need this past year that talks about the suburbanization of poverty in our metro areas, and you know some parts that read like political science, some parts like sociology, there may be even a little bit of economics in there and, and uh, social work. So it's true to my intellectual roots, perhaps. And so tell me a little bit more about the work you've done on poverty. We're, we're here in a season of Seattle Growth Podcast looking at homelessness, and very much interlinked is poverty. And you've written several books on the issue. Yeah. So the the work that I've been speaking about most recently comes from you know, last year's book, which focuses on um, how poverty uh, is composed differently in our metro areas today than, than 40 or 50 years ago. And it starts kind of with this conversation about when we think about poverty in the U.S., we think about poverty being in cities instinctively. We think about it being in cities where the neighborhoods are run down and buildings are abandoned and there are no jobs. We often think about it as places where people of color live, and so we kind of connect place and poverty together. And the book really starts to kind of to challenge those presumptions that we have, because they're not true empirically. They've never really been true empirically. But they're certainly not true today. Um, and you know, the punchline of the book is there's more poor people in the suburbs of our metro areas than the cities themselves, and poverty is a problem that all of us experience, or all our families and friends experience at some point or another. It's not just something that only people of color in cities uh, uh, grapple with. So a lot of the work I've been doing lately has been talking about those trends and kind of what they mean for social policy in the U.S. So. Who does fall into poverty? Can you break it down? You say maybe not by race or by place. Can you break it down by education or parts of the country or, or just who's really falling into poverty? Sure. It's an important question. Um, first, I would say we're all at risk of falling into poverty at one level. Um, I've, in the lead up to the book, I volunteered in food pantries in Chicago where I was living before I moved here. And I was always struck at how many people would come in who didn't look that different than 
my family or people in my neighborhood. Um, folks who'd gone to college, had good jobs, and then somebody got sick and they had to quit their job or they left their job or they lost their job and they were you know, on hard times. So in many ways, poverty is a, a, something that we all are, can experience, and, and I think that's an important thing to realize. In terms of the, the prevalence or the likelihood, um, um, poverty rates are much higher among um, people without advanced education, whether that means vocational training beyond high school or college. Um, poverty rates are much higher among people of color, um, in part because of, of different rates of educational completion, but also because of discrimination in the labor market and things like that. Um, uh, kids, uh, the poverty rate among children is much higher than the poverty rate among elder Americans, um, in part because our safety net programs work really well for retirees, Medicare, and Social Security. Um, we think about place a little bit too, as you noted. You know, we think of you know poverty rates are much higher in cities. You're more likely to be poor if you live in a city than if you don't. Um, but suburbs are catching up, and 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 poverty problems have been pervasive in rural communities for years, for decades. You know, extreme poverty can result in homelessness, which is the subject of, of this Seattle Growth Podcast season. What kind of safety net is available for those that fall into poverty, maybe to catch them before they get to homelessness or um, once they're in homelessness? You know, what kind of safety nets nationally or locally are, are there available? It's, a good, it, it's, it's good to think about deep poverty and homelessness. Um, and and, and it's, a, it's a good focus for, for a season of, of podcasts because the issues are so important. The problems have become pretty substantial uh, and, and not just substantial in cities. And we think of the homelessness conversation and a deep poverty conversation as being a Seattle thing. But there are more, as many homeless people and, and, and more people in deep poverty in the suburbs of the city. And, and so this isn't just a city thing. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that the whole metro struggles with and metros all over the country. Um, when we think about what we provide for low-income families in terms of safety net assistance, um, I, I start by thinking about federal programs. And in many ways, the federal government is probably the best level of government to deliver safety net assistance. It's got more resources. It has administrative capacity. It's not subject to kind of competitive pressures that like places and states might be. At the federal level, um, the Earned Income Tax Credit is one of our best anti-poverty tools. It's a, it's a, uh, a program that's run through the tax code, which refunds or credits um, um, taxes paid or taxes that would be paid for low-income workers. And it provides thousands of dollars to um, low-income family, you know, a given low-income family every year. And it's one of our largest uh, programs. Um, lifts lots of people out of poverty, millions of people out of poverty, but you have to work to get it, all right? So when we're talking about people in deep poverty or, or, or homeless families or individuals, that program is out of reach. Well, what's, what's there for, for those families? Uh, we have a f food stamps or, or uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, which uh, is also really effective at reducing poverty, um, helping um, families close the gaps in their budgets um, and serves you know, tens of millions of people a year. Um, both uh, people who are working and then people who can't work or are unable to work. We also have a variety of health insurance programs like Medicaid that provide really critical assistance to, to low-income families. So those are some of the big public programs. I think in reality, though, for many, many families in our community, a lot of the help they get comes from community-based nonprofits, um, whether that's uh, food assistance like in the food bank I was talking about, or through homeless services that nonprofits provide. I'm on the board of a nonprofit in Wallingford called Family Works, and they provide a lot of counseling to families who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. Um, 
and so you know we think about the big federal programs, but but at the end of the day, we spend almost as much money on these local nonprofits that do a lot of really important work. Now you've said that any one of the listeners could ultimately find themselves in poverty. Maybe not homelessness, but you know somebody gets sick, they could be in poverty. And so we've got these safety nets that could help anybody who's listening. But at the same time, there are critics that say, you know, these safety nets almost incentivize either laziness or just kind of staying in almost poverty, you know, just relying on the safety nets. Can you break us down a little bit maybe into the safety nets that are effective at getting people out of poverty versus the safety nets that almost catch people in an endless cycle of poverty? So the the, the kinds of programs that are most effective at reducing poverty are often these federally funded federally funded programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit, um, which lifts you know, tens of millions of people out of poverty a year, um, and, and, uh, and food stamps or SNAP. Those are effective programs. They're federally funded. They're federally administered. They're consistently available across places, um, and they provide you know, real benefits um, to, to families. Um, there's no evidence that those programs provide work disincentives. In fact, if anything, um, the Earned Income Tax Credit encourages labor market participation or rewards that. Um, and, and those are our most effective anti-poverty programs. Um, when people talk about um, programs that are less effective or that trap people, there's a couple issues I think that are going on there. One, we have these conversations in our country about deservingness and poverty. And we often portray in our rhetoric poor people as being lazy or not willing to work or not find a job. But most poor people are actually working. Um, it's just that they're working in jobs that don't lift them above the poverty line uh, or, um, or they can't get enough hours to, to, to get above the poverty line. You know, even in Seattle, at a $15 minimum wage, if you worked that full time, that would just get you barely to the poverty line um, if you had 40 hours a week. And for many people, that's just not not easy um, to find. So, you know, we have this sense that people are, desert, are, are lazy or, or you know, rhetoric talks about people not willing to work. That's just really not true. And when you go on the ground, you can find anecdotes anywhere of examples of that. But by and large, that's not, that's not the reality. What is a reality, though, is our safety net is predicated on work, right? So um, you're more likely to be eligible for programs if you're working. And that means if you can't find work, many, many aspects of our safety net may be out of reach for you. Uh, it also means that if you get a raise, you know, let's say you stay in a job and you go from $15 to $17, you get that bump and you feel like you're really making it and moving ahead, well, suddenly eligibility cutoffs and cliffs kind of kick in. And so you might have been getting food stamps or housing assistance at a certain level, and then you get a, a raise and suddenly you become ineligible. And what that does is it, it kind of imposes a marginal tax rate on your earnings. And it makes it almost counterproductive to get that raise. And, and so there's these kind of contradictions built into our eligibility determinations, which I think can trap people into poverty because the extra $2 an hour isn't enough to, to cover the foregone childcare assistance or to make up the difference in rent. And people kind of feel like they're stuck. Um, that's as much about the system as much about people's behavior or intentions. What could be done to address that kind of working poverty trap. Yeah. Well, so I think part of what we need to do is focus on ensuring that people are trained and ready for the labor market that we exist in. And that means not just ensuring people have a high school degree, but that they have some kind of training and education beyond that, whether it's for the tech industry or for other industries where there's job growth. Um, and, you know, we often have that conversation around four-year colleges. But four-year colleges probably aren't right for everybody. And in some ways, it may not be good investments for everybody. 
Um, and that there's lots of vocational and two-year programs that really can help you grab the next rung on the ladder. So I think it starts with education. Um, and then it's, then we think about um, having a minimum wage that might kind of you know, bring people up closer to the poverty line. Um, when, when the minimum wage was enacted in the 60s, it actually did get you to the poverty line like $15 with today, but for many decades it kind of lapsed. And that's tricky because you know when you raise minimum wages, there's kind of downstream consequences for labor markets, and we want to be mindful of that. Um, but if you don't pay people a good wage, it's hard for people, even if they work their best, to to get to poverty, get above poverty. So, you know, thinking about how we structure jobs and what we pay people matters. And then I think we can work on the eligibility part of these programs so that we give people grace periods or we slow out the phase, the phase outs. We slow down the phase outs, and that'll help people kind of grab that next next round the ladder, but not feel like they're penalized for doing so. People in Seattle are are witnessing this rise in homelessness, this rise in poverty. And it almost feels, you know, like a local thing with, you know, the tech boom and the Amazon and the big changes. So a lot of people feel it's like a local thing. Can you talk about what's happened nationally in terms of poverty and the safety net and the the help that's there to get people out of poverty on a national scale over time? So even though we're in an economic recovery right now, we've been in one for several years, it's important for us to be mindful of the, the national trends in poverty and how they relate to our local experience here in Seattle and in, in, in the Puget Sound region broadly. Even though we've had about you know eight or nine years of pretty pretty good economic growth, it's only starting to filter down to low-wage and low-skill workers. And so for the last decade or so, poverty's increased or stayed at a fairly high level until maybe just the last year or two where we're starting to see gains as, as employment um, becomes more available and as, as, as earnings rise. Um, over the last 30 years, we've seen poverty increase dramatically in cities, suburbs, and to kind of remain persistent in rural communities. Uh, in suburbs, the number of poor people's tripled um, compared to the population growth rate in the last 30 years. Uh, in, many, in many suburbs, the number of people who are poor has doubled in, in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, in cities, poverty's increased at a lower rate, but it, but, but it's still a, a real persistent problem. And you find poverty rates, you know, kind of anywhere from, you know, 10 to 20% in a lot of communities. Um, those trends are national, but they're present in all communities. And you see it true in Seattle where um, poverty has grown dramatically outside the city, but there are still pockets of high poverty in the city that, that we uh, should really be concerned about. Um, when we think about the safety net, when we think about the safety net, um, there are some kind of important national trends to keep in mind. One, um, over the last 30 or 40 years, we've expanded the earned income tax credit, which, as I know, is kind of one of our most effective uh, anti-poverty uh, tools. That's grown both in terms of the number of people who are receiving it and who are eligible and also in the amounts of the credit or refunds. Um, we've expanded eligibility for food stamps um, steadily over the last uh decade or so, which has brought more working poor families in and helped them kind of close the gap in their budgets. Uh, Medicaid's expanded quite a bit. Um, and so a lot of our key federal programs have actually grown significantly in the last 10 years, um, which kind of runs counter maybe to some of the narrative we have that our safety net's smaller or we're cutting it. In some ways we have some programs, um, uh, welfare cash assistance, for instance, for single moms is a much smaller program now than it was 30 years ago. 
So th those national trends are really important. At the, at the state and local level, you're seeing expanded funds in many programs, too. Um, we spend a lot more on early childhood education, which disproportionately benefits low-income families. Uh, we spend a lot more on, on health and human service uh, programs that, that target low-income families. And so you know, even locally, we're spending more, whether it's through federal dollars or local giving or state dollars, on these programs. So who should be paying for these safety nets, and, and what is the economic or political or sociological explanation for why the people you say should pay for it should be paying for it. So when, when our communities face these competitive pressures, they're less likely to do stuff, um, less likely to provide supports for low-income families. And and then that just makes poverty problems all, all the worse. So I always feel it's better that we position these programs at the federal level where we have the resources and where we have the administrative capacity and where we can do things comparably across places. Now, having said that, Seattle's in this moment where cities are really active in tackling issues of inequality and homelessness. You know, this is the, the, the theme of your, your season. Um, and there's a reason why we're seeing cities do this now in a way that they might not have done it before. One, um, there are metro areas that are really large and vibrant and have economies that uh, permit that kind of entrepreneurial activity in the policy space. I mean, you think here about you know Amazon and Microsoft and Boeing and other companies that have headquarters here, there's there's a, a, an economy that can support not only higher taxes, perhaps, but also an economy that's growing and vibrant that's not going to be swayed maybe by a small increase in, in property tax or a small increase in sales tax. But not all metro areas are, you know, experience that. If you go to Omaha or Topeka or... Um, or St. Louis, those cities probably don't have the same kind of vibrant economy. But in the places that do, you're seeing experimentation to try to think about local obligations. And oftentimes, the best examples of that are government working in concert with nonprofits, community-based organizations, and, and private business to find solutions that work and that have buy-in from all sectors. So you've written this book, Places in Need, uh, available on Amazon.com. Available on Amazon.com and find bookstores in your community. And find local bookstores. <laughs> Tell me about what you did. Uh, what What's the background? How did you go about writing this book? Where did you collect information? How did you do it? Sure. it's it's a, The origins are kind of accidental at some level. I um, I was working on a book in 2006-07 um, called Out of Reach, and it was about the changing nature of safety net policy in America and the growing reliance on nonprofit, community-based nonprofit organizations. And so I was writing this book about the role that these organizations play and how it's kind of been this blind spot in our in our work as, as scholars of social policy. And I was visiting human service nonprofits in different cities across the country, and, and I was in Los Angeles, and I had made contact with a food bank. And, you know, Los Angeles is interesting because, you know, the city proper is very small compared to, like, the region we identify as Los Angeles. And so this provider listed themselves as a Los Angeles food bank, but the address was some small little municipality, which I had never heard of. And so I drive to this place. This is like it predates the smartphone. So I had like maps printed out and I'm like looking at them and I'm getting further outside what I think of as LA. And then I go into one of the valleys and I'm suddenly in like the land of the Brady Bunch, right? There's these homes that like you think like this could have been the Brady Bunch home, right? And all of a sudden there's this food bank and I meet the executive director and she says, I'm so glad you're here. Our caseload has doubled every year for the last two years, and we can't understand what's going on in our community, and we'd love to talk with you about it. 
And I was in a suburb by any definition and well outside the city of Los Angeles. And it was really, really striking to me. Their shelves were completely empty. They couldn't keep food in stock, that the donations and the commodity products. The county had set up desks so they could enroll people in food stamps because the demand was so great. And many of these families hadn't any connection to the safety net. And it was just, it was striking to me. It kind of ran contrary to everything that I thought about poverty. You know, again, kind of playing to the tropes maybe that we have, that poverty is an urban problem. And around this time, there were reports coming out that suggested that there were more poor people in suburbs than in cities. Um, and it kind of, all of a sudden a bell went off or a light went off in my head. Light went off in my head. Um, and I started to think about what I, what I observed in Los Angeles and so then I did some quick kind of R&D work, and I found that a lot of service providers in these suburbs that I had been spending time near were experiencing the same thing. And that kind of launched me um, into the book. And so you know, the book explores the shifting geography of poverty in metro areas. Um, there's more poor people in suburbs now than in cities, by a lot. There's more poor people in deep poverty than in, in suburbs than in cities. Um, and um, there are many, many more people who are just on the edge that are just a sick child away from falling into poverty in suburbs than in cities. But poverty problems haven't gone away in cities. And so we have this kind of safety net dilemma. What do we do? How do we, how do we meet need in these suburban communities um, without taking away resources from cities? And so the second half of the book, after I track these demographic changes, talks about, well, what, what is the safety net response? And that's where I talk about how Many, community, many suburban communities don't have the nonprofit capacity um, or the public capacity to implement or deliver assistance. And so many poor families in suburbs are really left without the kinds of resources and supports that they need to get back to work or advance in the job market or you know, feed their families for a couple of weeks while they, while they grapple with a, a spell of unemployment. It's much harder to find that in suburbs and in cities. And so I, I end the book talking about how can we build a safety net that works in all places. So through your book, through your research, through this conversation, what would you like a listener who's in Seattle or the Seattle area, what would you like them to take away that they should think differently or do something differently based off this conversation? Sure. When I speak about the book and, the, and, and my work on poverty, I often talk about the obligations I feel I have in doing this work and moving forward, and, and in that way maybe give people some ideas on things that they can do. First, I think it's really important for us to challenge the stereotypes about poverty in America. And we have these notions that poverty problems are, are realities only in cities and only in communities of color. And that's not true, although poverty rates are, more, are higher in those communities. But what that does by tying poverty problems to race and place, it others the poor in a way that makes us feel less responsible for caring for poverty problems or blames them for poverty problems. We have to challenge our stereotypes because if we can't think clearly about poverty problems, we're not going to develop good solutions. Um, another another um, obligation I feel I have is to advocate for programs that we know that work, the earned income tax credit, SNAP, Medicaid, federal programs that are currently you know in danger of being on the cutting block in Washington, D.C., but we know really improve um, improve people's lives and really help them grab the next rung on the ladder and 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 help people become more mobile economically. Um, I think about our obligation then privately to support charitable nonprofits in our community, to support our congregations and the work they do, to volunteer. Um, we're a very generous country in our philanthropy, but we only give one out of every ten dollars to a charity that supports poor people, and we could do better, frankly. Uh, and then the last thing, I th maybe two other things that I think about. One, we need to train the next generation of leaders. I mean, that's why you and I are in a really fortunate position. You know, we have um, the 
the best minds in our country come to the University of Washington to train and to think about how they can tackle um, the problems of the day, whether they're economic or social. And it's important for us to make sure that they have the toolkits that they need and that they can transition into, into the roles and positions that our communities need them in. Um, and then finally, we just have to recognize we have a shared fate. Too often our conversations about poverty are divisive, and we have to realize that poverty problems are problems we all experience. All, fam all our family members are, are vulnerable, or we have family members who may be poor. They affect all our neighbors and our communities. It's that shared fate that we have that matters. And if we aren't willing to tackle poverty in all places, we won't be successful in tackling it in any one place. Scott, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Great. Thanks for the opportunity. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have an opinion to share? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman. Like what you're hearing? Please rate the podcast in iTunes. And also, please take a moment to like and share the Facebook page for my feature-length documentary, On the Brink, by visiting facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm. As one person put it, On the Brink is not just a story about the neighborhood, but also a story about changing racial dynamics in Seattle. So again, that's facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm. And now, I have to say I've appreciated those of you who've been listening from the very beginning of Seattle Growth Podcast. Five seasons in, and the results have exceeded my wildest imagination. The work has been recognized nationally by the New York Times, the Financial Times, and USA Today, and also locally by TV, radio, and print media. This was all made possible by the extraordinary guests who have shared their time and insight, and also the listeners who have kept me going for five seasons. At this point, I want to also say I owe a debt of gratitude to the Foster blog team, Ed Cromer and Mike Bosey, and the UW News and Information Office, including Victor Balta, Peter Kelly, Rebecca Gorley, and Michelle Ma. We still have another episode left in this season of Seattle Growth Podcast, and then it's time to start thinking of the future. What topic do you want to hear about? Who do you want to hear from? I know I want to hear from you. Let me know on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, what you think should be the next focus of Seattle Growth Podcast. Until next time, I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the fifth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.